and welcome to Charm City Checkup, a podcast about social justice issues in the city of Baltimore for pediatric residents, made by a pediatric resident. My name is Caroline Knoop, and I'm your host. Currently, I am a pediatric resident in the city of Baltimore. I'm learning about community resources, social justice issues, and social determinants of health that face our patients and their families. Join me as I learn about all things social justice in the city of Baltimore. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Charm City Checkup. On today's podcast, we will be discussing early childhood development and the Infants and Toddlers Program. I have Dr. Brenda Hussey-Gardner on for an interview about her role in the Infants and Toddlers Program in Maryland and her expertise in early childhood development and intervention. The Baltimore Infants and Toddlers Program is an interagency program for families who have children that have either been diagnosed with a developmental delay or a condition that may affect future development. This program enrolls children from birth up to three years of age who have a suspected developmental delay. Prior to enrollment, preliminary screening and assessment on topics such as speech and language, physical, cognitive, and psychosocial development is performed to determine intervention needs. Once enrolled, children and families receive access to a lot of services, including special instruction, speech pathology and audiology, OT, PT, psychological services, case management, med services for diagnoses, health services related to other early intervention services, family education, counseling, and support. As Baltimore Infants and Toddlers is linked to the Baltimore City Health and Social Service Departments and public schools, services can be accessed at many locations in the city and are even provided in the home. Head Start programs serve families with children from birth to age five. Eligible children are from families that meet the federal low-income guidelines, children in foster care system, or who are experiencing homelessness. Some programs can also accept a limited number of children who do not meet any of these eligibility criteria. Head Start helps children get ready to succeed in school. They focus on early development and learning, health and wellness, family well-being, and family engagement. Many programs operate both a Head Start preschool and early Head Start services. It can be center-based, home-based, or in a family child care setting. These two programs are extremely valuable to achieving optimal childhood development and health as they provide resources, community, and support, and work towards decreasing the burden of health disparities experienced by families enrolled. Childhood development and health is largely linked to early childhood experiences. The first eight years of a child's life are incredibly impactful for future development. In fact, vocabulary skills developed by age three can predict third grade reading level, which predicts high school graduation rates. High school graduates, in turn, are more likely to report good health and visit a health professional to maintain their health. Health disparities and inequities experienced during peak development ages can have a profoundly negative impact on development and lifelong health. Stressors include low socioeconomic status, lack of safety and stability, and access to education and care, difficult daily living conditions, and adverse childhood events. Presence of these stressors early on can disrupt neurologic, metabolic, and immunologic systems, which result in poor developmental outcomes. Protective factors such as coordinated healthcare and responsive caregiving relationships, of which are provided all through the Baltimore Infants and Toddlers Program and Head Start, help to reduce the impact of stressors and socioeconomic disparities on childhood development and health. In the Infants and Toddlers Program specifically, those who entered the program had an increase in social-emotional skills, ability to acquire and use knowledge, and ability to take appropriate action to meet needs. Overall, this is a great help and positive impact for our patients. So let's learn more with Dr. Hussey Gardner.
have Dr. Brenda Hussey-Gardner on our podcast today to talk about early intervention and her role in the Infants and Toddlers program. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. You know, it's always my pleasure to talk about early intervention. I could do it all day long because I'm just so very passionate about it. I love it. I can't wait to hear all of your insight and information that you have for us. Um, We'll start off with like, what is your role and how are you involved with the Infants and Toddlers program? Well, I'm lucky that I'm involved in many different ways. So I'm involved in four different ways. Uh, First, I'm the director of a program called Maryland's Pride, which stands for Maryland's Premature Infant Developmental Enrichment Program, which is a unique collaboration between uh, the NICU here at University of Maryland and our NICU follow-up program and the Baltimore Infants and Toddlers Program. So infants who are in our NICU or who are cared for in a NICU where our neonatologists are present, for instance, at St. Joseph's Hospital or at Mercy Hospital, those babies are eligible to be part of the Maryland's Pride program. And that is a concerted effort of identification, evaluation, referral, and service acquisition for our families to streamline the delivery of early intervention services while trying to really enhance family engagement, putting early intervention within their University of Maryland medical homes, so to speak. And um, recently, we conducted a study evaluating how premature babies participating in the Baltimore City Infants and Toddlers Program with and without Maryland's Pride did. And that study was published in the Journal of Early Intervention this summer. And it was so exciting to learn that babies that are in Maryland's Pride are referred at a younger age approximately nine months earlier than other preterm babies, a smaller percentage of our parents withdraw from the program. And we think it's because we meet them in the NICU. Mm -hmm. So we're meeting them at a time where they're sort of vulnerable and they're grateful to know that there is going to be somebody there to help them after discharge. And we're seeing them in NICU follow-up. So we we feel like the parents are, are more engaged with that process. And then children who are in pride stay with the Baltimore Infants and Toddlers program longer. So it's exciting. We've always felt like we did a really good job, but it wasn't until we statistically looked at the numbers that we knew we were really doing some things better. And as part of Pride, I get to do home visits. So shortly after these babies go home from the NICU, I do a home visit along with one of my service coordinators where we do a developmental evaluation as part of the eligibility evaluation and then write their individualized family services plan afterwards. In fact, I just did two of those visits earlier today. So it's really wonderful. We used to do it in the NICU. But we found that by waiting until the baby's been home a week or two, the families really better understand what's hard for them, what the challenges are, uh, what they really need from the infants and toddlers program. Because when we do this in the NICU, they are not yet taking care of their babies around the clock. Um, So it's really nice opportunity to get out there. Uh, Secondly, I serve on the Baltimore City Interagency Coordinating Council, which advises and guides how the Baltimore City Infants and Toddlers Program runs. 
And I also serve on and chair the Maryland State Interagency Coordinating Council, which advises and guides how early intervention is run in the state of Maryland. I, I value both of those positions because it, it allows me to bring some of the research that we do here, the clinical concerns we may see or concerns that families have up to bodies who can make a difference. Um, third, I'm very fortunate to provide a lot of in-service training to the local infant and toddler programs across the state regarding infants born prematurely and medically fragile babies to really help them better understand what the, the needs are of this unique population. And then finally, along with uh, some of our wonderful residents and my neonatology colleagues, I conduct research to help change policies and regulations that govern how the Maryland Infants and Toddler Program operates. In fact, I'm right now doing a research study with Christina Lee, mm -hmm. looking at whether or not we should change the high probability criteria for preterm babies from a birth weight of 1,200 grams to a birth weight of 1,500 grams. Wow. It sounds like you are totally invested in this um, area of research and of clinical practice. It sounds amazing and very cool to have you on the podcast to talk about these issues. Um, what made you interested in early childhood intervention and development? Well, it goes all the way back to when I was an undergrad. I, I was really interested in working with children with special needs and did several internships um, as a special education major, working with children receiving special education services in elementary school, particularly working with children with um, moderate to severe behavioral and emotional needs. And I quickly realized that intervention needed to start before school age, and that we needed to work with the families of these children as well in order to get the best possible outcomes. Um, I did an internship with the Anne Arundel County Infants and Toddlers Program when I was a senior, and there was no turning back. I absolutely fell in love with early intervention, the family-centered care that was being provided by this program, and really helping um, make a difference from the very earliest ages, and went on to graduate school. And my first year of graduate school, I did an internship in the NICU at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and I immediately knew that I wanted a career that was going to blend work in the NICU with early intervention. I just so strongly believe in the power of early intervention and the needs that exist in the population that we serve in the NICU that I knew from the beginning I was going to have to devote my career to this. And, you know, 30 years later, this is exactly what I'm doing. I love it. Um, it sounds like there's a lot of positive impact that can be done, obviously, with early intervention. But how do we get to that positive impact? So what are some of the services that are offered through infants and toddlers? Um, it's really important to know that the Infants and Toddlers Program offers a variety of services, but they're all going to be individualized to meet the unique needs of the child and family. I have had in the past two children with the same exact diagnoses, born within two weeks of one another, perform exactly the same on the developmental testing and have very different services because of the needs of the family. So services are really designed to support the family and facilitating their child's attainment on the goals that are on the IFSP, whatever they may be. And services can be delivered by a variety of professionals. So, you know, 
it's common for services to include uh, those from a physical therapist or an occupational therapist, a speech and language pathologist, a special education teacher, or a service coordinator. Now, exactly what services they get are going to depend on the needs of the child and the family and what those goals are. But there are three evidence-based practices that are driving the delivery of early intervention services in Maryland that are really important for residents and pediatricians to understand. Because we can no longer ask a patient what service are they getting from the infants and toddlers program when they're coming in for a well-child visit. Because in some places, they're using something called a primary service provider model where one person could be working on goals across domains. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to talk about those three evidence-based practices so we can better understand how the program works and runs and possibly better ask questions of our families. That would be great. Yeah. So the first is coaching. And as that name implies, we are coaching family members on how to best help their child meet their goals on the IFSP by doing little things during their child's daily routines with the family that really help that child develop and learn. So when I first started in early intervention or the old school way, a therapist or a teacher would show up to the home, work with the child for an hour, during which time mom or dad could go take a shower, get something done in the kitchen or relax. And then they'd regroup together during the last 10 minutes and recap what they worked on. But what research shows is if a family member stays with the early intervention provider and we coach them on what they can do to help their baby develop and learn, then children get way more than that one hour of service because the family is now able to do it every day. And we also know that even though a provider might come out as much as once a week, that really still is a stranger to the baby. And the baby's going to do better when these activities are done with mommy, daddy, or grandma, somebody that they've got a relationship with. So for instance, we might coach a family who has a baby with hypertonicity on how to do baby massage if we learn that putting lotion on their baby is part of their bath time routine. So that massage can help reduce that muscle tone. Now, there's the second um, evidence-based practice is routines-based intervention. So when we're coaching families on what they can do, we should be giving them strategies that are embedded within their family's daily routines. So I did not, in that example, coach a family to set aside 15 minutes a day to do baby massage and sort of put on their therapist hat. Instead, it's just after bath time when you're normally putting on the lotion, I want you to massage it in this way. So again, it should just be things that families are coached to do during their daily routines that when done repeatedly, these little things add up and really make a big difference in that child's progress. Now, every jurisdiction in the state of Maryland is doing coaching and they are doing routines-based intervention. And coaching does not mean that we use our words only. We are touching the baby. We are playing with the baby. We are providing therapy, but we're also coaching families on how they can do it and asking them, how are these strategies working? Are they useful? Are you seeing progress and needing to tweak our coaching in order to get at the goals we, we want to achieve. 
Um, the third evidence-based practice is called the primary service provider model. And in that model, a child has a team behind them. So that team may include a physical therapist, occupational therapist, speech and language pathologist, a special educator, maybe even a nurse or a social worker. And the team of providers meets regularly to review and discuss their shared caseload. Then based on the needs of the family and the child, the most appropriate professional from that team then goes out as a primary service provider and provides all the services to the child across domains. So for instance, a PT may work on hypertonicity and helping a child attain next gross motor skills, but also be working on fine motor skills. And when you hear this, you might think, well, how can a physical therapist do that? They're not, they're not occupational therapists. But when you're an early interventionist, you are first and foremost the therapist that you've gone to school for, that you're certified and licensed to be. But as an early interventionist, we also receive very extensive in-service training that prepares us to work as a transdisciplinary provider. So we have skills above and beyond just our degree that allows us to meet needs across domains. Now, that doesn't mean if there's a, a need that requires specialty training that if I'm a physical therapist, I have to be able to do. So if I'm a physical therapist and I need to work on increasing vocabulary, the speech therapist on my team may coach me on some strategies to use while we're working on crawling or walking or ball play that works on using my words as a child to use what's in my environment. But then if the child has an articulation disorder, no amount of coaching is going to get the physical therapist to be able to look at the child's mouth. And in that situation, the speech and language pathologist would join the physical therapist on a home visit. They may co-treat or they may decide that, you know what, gross motor skills and fine motor skills are really progressing beautifully. It's really this articulation thing. Maybe the speech and language pathologist should now become the primary service provider. So it, it, again, we know from research, people do best when they're in relationships with others. And having a primary person come out allows that relationship building. We've also seen when we introduced primary service provider model in different jurisdictions, a concern that, wow, you know, PT, OT, and speech are all coming out now. Our family is going to be upset when it's only one provider coming out. And maybe they're going to go from services three times a week to once a week. It, is there going to be pushback on that? And universally, parents love it. It is so much easier to be home once a week than three times a week. And prior to this, or in places that are still using a more standard model, Parents often don't know who's coming out, what their profession is, what they're working on, and they feel like they're dividing their child into different body parts, and they never know who's the right person to ask what question. But in a primary service provider model, everything becomes integrated. That one person can help the parent figure out what is the priority, what is most important for them to work on right now, and focus on that and evolve over time. And then the parent always knows 
who to go to with all of their questions because there is that one person. And if that person doesn't know, they're going to ask the other team members. And if needed, they'll bring another team member out. So we're seeing great success across the nation and in our jurisdictions that are doing primary service provider model. Some, but not all the jurisdictions in Maryland are using that model. Wow. So again, my biggest piece of advice is when you are seeing a family that are in the infants and toddlers program, finding out how often they're seeing them and finding out what goals they're working on will give you a lot more information than finding out what type of therapist is coming out. Totally. And just thinking about it and hearing you explain exactly how this works, I think will allow residents and pediatricians to exactly better ask the questions and have a better understanding of exactly what's going on in the home for these patients. Yes. And as I said, you will hear information about coachings and routines-based intervention in all jurisdictions. Not all are doing the primary service provider model yet. It it takes a, a big system change to implement that model. Oh yeah, I bet. And can you tell me from your experience or your research, um, what kind of positive impact can this early intervention have for patients? And I think this will give residents a better idea. Obviously, we all know how great this program is, especially in the state of Maryland that we have access to, but this will kind of maybe um, help us refer, you know, and keep it at the top of our minds when we're seeing our patients, particularly in an outpatient setting. So for me, it's wonderful that we are no longer asking the question, does early intervention work? We know it works. Mm -hmm. Um, The research is solid on that. Children who participate in early intervention truly benefit from these services. And I think two pieces of information that will be interesting. um, There was a longitudinal research study done right here in Maryland, looking at outcomes associated with the receipt of services from the Maryland Infants and Toddlers Program. And it makes me proud and excited to be able to say that more than 68% of children who received the Maryland Infants and Toddlers Program services were enrolled in general education without any additional special education or related services by third grade. So that is, to me, is just wonderful. Mm -hmm. And we are now changing our questions from, you know, does it work? to to more economic ones so that we can sustain these programs. And we now know investing in early intervention is the, the, the smartest decision to make. And it creates better economic outcomes for the children that receive early intervention services, and it reduces later spending. And depending on what study you read, for every dollar that is spent on early intervention, our return on investment can be as high as $13. So for every $1 you spend, if that child did not receive early intervention, it would cost us 13 more dollars. So children who receive early intervention need services for a shorter duration. They're not likely to need it as long in elementary school or not needed at all in middle school or high school, they're more likely to be employed. They're more likely to go to college. They're less likely to be incarcerated. So there are many long-term benefits out there. In addition to the fact that they learn to talk and walk and meet those milestones that we would like them to meet. Now, we all know that there's children with diagnoses that they're going to need help for a long, long time. And what we know about those children 
is that they are more likely to meet their maximum potential if they are in early intervention. So we're not going to be able to get all children out of special education services by third grade, for instance. If you have trisomy 21, you're likely to need special services throughout your education, but you're going to be more independent, more likely to be employed and, and more successful. Wow. I mean, those are great things to keep in mind and amazing to hear about as well. And any final takeaways that you want pediatric residents to remember the next time they're thinking about referring a patient to infants and toddlers or anything you want them to know about the program? Yeah, I have a couple of those things. <laughs> um, first, I, I think it's really important to know that in Maryland, early intervention services are provided at absolutely no charge to families. And this is really wonderful because in many states, parents have to pay for these services. So absolutely free. We do not bill private insurance. We don't accept co-pays. The only thing we are allowed to bill is public insurance, medical assistance with parent permission. So absolutely free. So no economic impact on families. Uh, secondly, is being familiar with what makes a child eligible. So if a child has a high probability medical condition, and there are hundreds of those, the child's automatically eligible from birth to three years of age. For babies born prematurely, it's a birth weight of less than 1,200 grams currently. Um, but there are many, many other diagnoses. So if it's a diagnosis that you know is associated with developmental delay, it is very likely that it will make them automatically eligible. So refer them. Um, for other children, it's a 25% delay in their development or atypical development. So a child may be doing what they should, when they should, but they're not doing it how they should. Um, an example of that would be you have a 13-month-old who's walking, which is great, but if they only walk on tiptoes and never come down flat on their feet, that child could benefit from some services to help with their gait so it doesn't lead to delays in running or kicking a ball or using stairs. Um, the third thing is as soon as you suspect that a child may be eligible, refer them. Don't wait. We hear all too often from family members that they were worried and they hear that their pediatrician said, well, let's see how they're doing at their next visit. Don't wait. Just refer them. We as an early intervention system would rather have a referral, reassure a family that everything is okay, met them. Let them know that they can call us back at any time in the future than to miss a child or to wait too long. Mm -hmm. And making referrals are really, really easy. And I highly recommend that residents and pediatricians make the referral themselves. And they do so at referral.mditp.org. That's referral.mditp.org. Because if you refer a child using that website, you will then get information back and learn about whether or not they were able to contact the family and do the evaluation, whether or not the child was eligible. So you get that closed feedback loop if you're the one making that referral. Um, once you refer a child, it's also really important to follow up with the family to make sure that they are receiving services, ask about the goals they're working on, and the the family feels like the child is making progress. And no, you can. your voice is really important. You can always reach out to the child service coordinator and share additional concerns 
or make recommendations. And then I want everybody to be out on the lookout for something really, really special that's coming out in about that they say it's going to be out by January, but I like to say by July, so we don't get our hopes up too high. But Maryland Infants and Toddlers Program is going to have a community portal. And parents will have access to that portal, which will contain their child's IFSP, all evaluation reports, contact names, phone numbers, emails for any providers involved with a child. And then the parent will be able to give permission to their pediatrician to access that portal. And that pediatrician would be able to log in and view everything that is there. We'll be able to see who all's involved and exactly know exactly who to contact, or you could even upload into it the results of an ASQ or an MCHAT. So again, the family, in order for us to have permission, we have to be HIPAA and FERPA, mostly FERPA compliant. And it requires that the family is the driver of that. And they're the ones who will give permission and revoke permission for community partners to be able to get into that portal. So with uh, parent permission, you'll be able to go right into the system and be able to see things, which I find particularly helpful on a visit if a parent is having trouble articulating what they're working on or what their child's getting, or if I want to talk with a provider and they're not sure of the phone number. Wow. That sounds really exciting. And all those things are great. Um, I just want to thank you so much for giving us all of this information and your time um, to talk about this topic. Um, You're absolutely an expert. And I thank you so much for coming on and giving us all this information. And I think that pediatric residents will be better for it. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And, you know, if anybody has a question, you're more than welcome to email me at bhussey at som.umaryland.edu. I'd be glad to answer any questions. Thanks for listening to this episode of Charm City Checkup, a podcast about social justice issues in the city of Baltimore for pediatric residents, made by a pediatric resident. Special thanks to medical student Juliana Solomon for research and editing. Please follow us on Instagram at Charm City Checkup, and feel free to reach out with any questions or episode ideas by emailing charmcitycheckup at gmail.com. Please remember that all opinions expressed on the podcast are mine and not necessarily shared by my employer. Bye. 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 Bye.